In the 1300s, it is believed that some merchant ships docked in England carrying more than their intended cargo. In addition to their spices and scurvy, they were also carrying a deadly surprise that would go on to wipe out nearly one-third of the European population. It was later named the bubonic plague and caused dark circles to appear on the victim, as well as a foul stench. Carrying around flowers became a common practice to cover up the odor, and a real happening song was made about it. Ring around the rosy, pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. I believe we have some modern treatments for this disease, but do you know how they stopped it in the 1300s? They didn't. They cleaned up the trash which lessened the rats which lowered the fleas that carried the plague to Jack's house. So the solution was to reduce your chances of infection and not actually cure the disease once you got it. There's some quite nasty viruses in remote parts of Africa. Viruses that have 50% or more fatality rate and may cause death within days. Fortunately for most people, these viruses are a victim of their own success. They are so deadly that they kill the ones they infect before the host gets a chance to pass it to too many others. That, and I think too many of them aren't airborne. Yet. I'd like my friend Julio to tell you a fictional story about a new horrible disease. Julio? Deep in the jungles of Africa, a researcher named Jane studies the little monkeys as they jump through the trees. On her very last day of her quest, as she is packing her jeep, about to leave for the airport, she is beaten by one of the monkeys. All of her first aid is packed up. She decides she will be fine. Cleaning this wound immediately may have saved the entire world. A rare and exciting virus has been transmitted to Jane. It's already deadly in monkeys, but it is about to become something much more worse for humans. There's no visible indication that this monkey is deceased. The virus in this monkey will slowly kill it in over four or five years, at which time his hide may be tanned and become fine Corinthian leather to be used in Ford Pintos throughout various third world countries. It takes Jane eight hours to get to the airport and another two to get on the plane. She's pulling down monkey researcher money so she can't afford to take a direct flight home. Her plane flies to London where she has an overnight stay. The next day, she boards another plane for Paris to get a connection to ultimately glorious Washington, D.C. By the time she arrives in America, it has been 36 hours since she was originally beaten. She is bored, and her ass itches like crazy. She would kill to have some of Juan Valdez's famous coffee, the kind where he wakes up before sunrise each day to pick the freshest goddamn beans. But something miraculous has happened inside her body. This virus mutates in a very bad way. It becomes airborne and highly contagious. This virus attacks the victim's alveoli. These are the little sacs in your lungs that transmit gases to and from the bloodstream. Basically, you need them to breathe. This new virus, later named Spiritus Frendo, infects the alveoli causing them to rupture so that they cannot maintain their spherical shape. They collapse and can no longer exchange gases. In monkeys, this was a very slow process. But due to several differences, including diet and genetics, Spiritus Frendu acts much more quickly in humans. 
as it spreads within the host, breathing becomes more and more difficult. The victim begins coughing and generally feels tired. I generally feel tired. Within as little as five days, the victim may start experiencing severe symptoms as their body can no longer remove excess carbon dioxide nor replenish its life-giving oxygen. This results in headaches, fatigue, and nausea. Eventually, this will result in brain death. The victim suffocates. So our dear Dr. Jane isn't feeling well as she disembarks at Dulles Airport. She notices she's got a terrible headache and is feeling exhausted, but doesn't think much about it. She chalks it up to being on a plane for so long. Her coughing on the plane has infected several fellow passengers and some of the flight crew, as well as sending the virus onto numerous surfaces awaiting the passengers who next embark. As she walked through the terminal to the luggage pickup, she infected several dozen other people. She even infected the cab driver that drove her to her parents' house. Hey, she's been gone for two years and doesn't have a permanent residence with a sickly Latin lover yet. Her parents just think she needs some rest, and they order her to stay in bed. After three days, they become concerned, but Jane insists she just needs more rest and maybe a monkey-shaped stuffed animal, as would might be one in a county fair. She is dead on her fourth day home. Her parents don't even suspect that the same fate is about to befall them as well. But that's not the real problem. She infected approximately 30 other people on the airplane and airport. Three of them were on various business trips and would be headed back to Dulles in two to four days. They headed off to their various destinations, and when they re-entered the airport for their return trip, they were in a highly contagious state, and they repeated the same process that Jane did just days before. They infected around 30 people each, in addition to their cab drivers. It is a well-known fact that cab drivers have a very poor immune system. It has something to do with all that yellow. Each of the infected cab drivers had a family to support. None of them were feeling well, but they could not afford to take off sick. For the few that had sick time, the tips they would lose would severely injure them financially. Despite their wife's protests, each of them unwittingly infected several dozen more people half of which would be getting on an airplane to transport their deadly cargo to yet another city. And thus began the end of the world. Thank you, Julio. It was my pleasure. You probably thought that the most dangerous form of transportation was the horseless carriage. Tens of thousands of people die every year because of it. But in reality, it's airports you should fear. Not from the gross negligence of maintenance or drunken pilots or rude, knife-wielding Nazi stewardesses, Mass transportation makes it much easier for disease to spread. It enables a disease to come in contact with many more people, many different types of people with differing immune systems, and then those people are off to another location, possibly with even more mass transportation, just giving the disease even more chance to spread. When you consider the flight crew and business travelers that go from airport to airport, they're just toting around germs and spreading them across the world. It's amazing we aren't dead already. So let's be fairly conservative about this fictitious disease and say that each carrier infects eight people over a three-day period. This becomes more realistic due to it being spread inside airports where lots of people are constantly passing through. But I'm just making this up. I was going to bore you with a rundown of each day, but I decided I'd just say that after 25 days, you'd end up with over 130 million people infected. Not dead, just infected. That's almost half the U.S. population. Under this totally fictitious scenario, 
it is highly likely that 80% of the world's population could be dead within six months. I'm sure some epidemiologists will state that my story is highly unlikely, especially not in the time frame I've laid out, but realism isn't my point here. I'm just making up a scenario to illustrate another point. That's right, all this was just misdirection. I'm actually going to talk about something non-virus. Okay, I'll talk about viruses a little. Either by act of nature, act of terrorism, or any number of other acts, including natural viruses, engineered viruses, wayward asteroid, nuclear war, Skynet finally going online, an invading force of aliens, or even a combination of things, it's not impossible that a huge portion, way beyond half, of the population could be wiped out. Perhaps a runaway planet passes between the Earth and the Moon so that Thundar the Barbarian, together with his companions Ukla the Mock and Ariel, must pit his strength, his courage, and his fabulous sun sword against the forces of evil. I'm not saying it's likely. I'm just saying it's possible. It's possible that some unforeseen catastrophe could befall the Earth and wipe out a whole bunch of our asses. But I'm not interested in what the actual event is that takes our butts down. I'm concerned with a very specific aspect of what happens afterwards. Let's say that for whatever reason, only 10 to 20% of the population survives this disaster. Now specifically, I'm only referring to the population in civilized societies, not a tribe living on some island trying to sacrifice Christopher Atkins. Let's assume this is caused by a virus because it's more dramatic. This could have been any kind of disaster. Within the weeks after whatever, the power would go off as no one is around to maintain and refuel the power plants. The phones would then go out since the phone company relies on power. With power goes the radio and television stations. The traffic lights no longer work. The water pressure would one day decrease to almost nothing, and then nothing, as the water towers were quickly emptied and not replenished, both because of there being no power to run the water pumps, as well as no one around to turn them on anyway. Eventually, your gas lines would no longer emit that foul-smelling vapor. All of the modern conveniences would be useless, Mostly because most of them rely on electricity. Where's your lamp lighting ghosts now, huh? The local, state, and federal governments would simply collapse, as there's no one to run things. And if there were, they would have no one working for them to follow their orders. If you noticed how we did our best after Katrina, think of that on a global scale, where the people who were supposed to come to the rescue are dead themselves. For months after this disaster, people would probably mooch off their local grocery and convenience stores, this wouldn't be looting. This would be pure survival. No one would care if you took a TV. There's no electricity and there isn't going to be for a long time. All the people that ran the electric plant are dead. The people who ran the cameras at the TV station are dead. The accountant at your local cable company that ensures money is sent to HBO so they can rebroadcast their signal is dead. The president of HBO is alive but he's dwelling in his mansion with tissue boxes on his feet and isn't worried about your damn cable signal so you can see the Sopranos. How are you going to get your basic necessities of life? Food, water, and shelter. Let's assume that either your current shelter is still standing, or if not, there's plenty of empty houses or businesses around, so you got your choice. Basic shelter will probably be sufficient unless this happens in winter or you live closer to the poles than you do the equator. Now eventually, the Piggly Wiggly down the street will be out of canned head cheese and Oreos. Their fruit and vegetables will rot very quickly if you haven't eaten them already. Even their supply of Twinkies and Ding Dongs will be depleted after a few months, as well as all their bottled water, Diet Shasta, and Penguin brand cola. You're going to have to get some food and water fast. If you have a stream nearby, you can risk drinking from it. 
Is it clean? Are you sure? When have you ever had to purify water? Okay, maybe when you go camping, but that was only for a few days. Now you're going to have to purify water for every day. I'll assume that eventually you'll figure out at least a simple distilling process based on fire and condensation. Now you realize that condensation wasn't just a tool for the coaster industry. As for food, most people aren't used to finding food anywhere but at the grocery store. I'm going to assume that since you're listening to a podcast, you're fairly technologically with it, and aren't listening on a homemade MP3 player in the bush while you're cooking a rabbit on a spit. But man has been finding ways to eat for centuries before you came along, and you'll figure it out one way or another. Eventually, you're going to have to make fire. And again, you'll probably figure this one out. Or you'll just start an initial fire with the matches from the store before they run out, and then just keep that going night and day. So I think most of humanity will figure out the whole food, water, shelter thing. So at its basic level, you will survive. If only the same could be said of Gloria Gaynor. I'm going to assume the natural human instinct will be to seek out others. And the most obvious thing is to use your feet or your car. Your car might be drivable, and the streets around you may be free from debris and corpses, but eventually you'll need to get some gas. Modern gas pumps at the station won't work without electricity, so siphoning it off from other cars is a fair option for now. You slowly travel around your town trying to find others like you, and eventually you discover quite a few. I mean, only 8 or 9 out of 10 died. Now that you're all gathered together, you and these others have a decision to make. Either stay where you are and try to rebuild your town, or go in search of others who either weren't hit as hard as you, or may have better resources to rebuild. Before you make this deceptively unimportant decision, you need to find out the answer to one very important question. What do these people know how to do? You begin tabulating what skills these people have. There are several children, but among the adults, you wind up with around 80 people, consisting of two software engineers, a loan officer at a bank, a court reporter, two lawyers, landscape engineers, short order cook, several secretaries, several retail clerks, a police officer, a few nurses, a pharmacist, a fireman, a high school teacher, an elementary teacher, a karate instructor, a mailman, a guy who works at an electronic store, a guy who owns a liquor store, several managers, several corporate salespeople, a marketing guy, a couple of local truck drivers, crane operators, forklift driver, electrician, ice cream man, toll booth operator, an HVAC duct installer, several housewives, the building maintenance guy for a middle school, a gutter installer, an explosive expert for a regional district manager for a toy distribution company, an automobile assembly line worker, a dentist, a surgeon, an interior decorator, several waitresses, a mechanic, a painter, a construction worker, and several basement-dwelling computer nerds who play World of Warcraft for a living. Wow, that's a lot of different occupations. Surely this group of people with their various expertises can help create a strong community. Yes, and I'm sure you could have a very well-to-do community. But is your goal to just survive or rebuild the world you once knew? Possibly correcting some things. I'm certain all you will be concerned with is basic survival. But basic survival is pretty easy. You'll have mastered that fairly quickly. So your next goal is to rebuild civilization. Ultimately, that should be your goal. To rebuild society for the remaining children and to continue the human species. You're going to find this much more difficult. This catastrophe has just set back mankind at least a hundred years, possibly more. How could we be set back that far? We've still got all the technological items laying around, as well as libraries all over the place. In addition to that, you've got all these specialized people. Their combined knowledge must be incredibly useful. Unfortunately, all those factors will be of little assistance to you. You're going to be facing numerous problems. The specific problems will be different based on what occupations the survivors have, but the basic problem is the same. Okay, here. First, you have a cook. 
but all he knows how to do is take a ground beef patty out of a refrigerator and throw it on a gas-heated grill. He's not a butcher. He doesn't understand what parts of an animal are edible. He doesn't know how to process a carcass for food. He's not going to be any kind of asset for obtaining food other than just a warm body. You have two software engineers. Oh, they'll be real useful. There's no power, and even if there was, an XML database isn't particularly high on the list of priorities. Sure, the internet has all types of useful information, but A, you don't have to be a software engineer to access the internet, and B, there's no power, and the phone and cable are out. The computers that make up the internet are down. There's nothing there to access. You may get power, but the computer with the information you want is dead. The landscape designer may be of use if you want to arrange the corpses nicely in your yard. This could serve as a warning to roaming surviving biker gangs. It always seems bikers are more resilient than roaches in world-destroying events. I don't mean to insult anybody that has any of these jobs. To be fair, I listed my own job in there. But most of these people will be of little use in a long-term survival situation, even more so when you're trying to recreate the nation. I'm not saying you personally have nothing to offer, or that certain individuals won't have other skills beyond their job. I'm saying that your particular career is of little use here. You may have gone to college or had special training, but think now, how will that training benefit you in this new situation? Yeah, the clerk at Best Buy will be even more useless than they usually are. Not only will they not have the answer for you, but now you've got to compete with them for food. A well-placed pillow will solve that problem. But there's a few people in here that at first glance would appear to be helpful. Police officer, nurse, pharmacist, fireman, teachers, electrician, explosive expert, dentist, surgeon, mechanic, and construction worker. Surely these will really help in this situation. Let's go back to our list of primary necessities. Food, water, and shelter. Which of these skills provides food? I know the electrician can make a mean, high-voltage possum, and it'll probably come down to that, but do any of these skills directly help you with food any more than what you'll be able to figure out on your own? Not much. How about water? The fireman is quite familiar with water, but does he know how to purify it? The teachers may have some insight. If you've got a high school chemistry teacher, you are in some amazing luck. If you've got a high school gym teacher, well, unless you need help with dodgeball, you're having less luck. So the teacher is a possibility. As for the rest, probably not. Okay, how about shelter? Ah, the construction worker and possibly the mechanic would be of great help here. Unfortunately, shelters aren't really consumable. So there's already numerous existing empty shelters. You can just mooch off the dead. So for shelter, these people probably aren't needed at the moment. But their skills will be useful later. So you're pretty much starting from ground zero for food and water. Shelter is probably taken care of. What would be next on the list? I think taking care of your injured should probably be high on the list. So healthcare? This would be things like medication, examination, and medical procedures. Who left will help you in this area? Ah, you got several people here. I see some nurses and a surgeon and a pharmacist and a dentist. One of the teachers may teach a health class, so she could at least know basic first aid. That's great! Let's see. If she got a broken arm or some other obvious injury, the nurses or surgeons should be quite capable. What if you're suffering from diabetes? The nurse and pharmacist may be able to temporarily help you, but the permanent solution is to get you some insulin. You can raid the local Walgreens for some, but eventually they'll run out. Even if those occupations included learning how to manufacture insulin, they have none of the required tools to do it. You don't just throw some grass and eggs in a blender and get insulin. It has a manufacturing technique. I, for one, have no idea how it's made. I know early techniques involved extracting substances from animal pancreases, but I think it's more complicated than slamming it over an orange juicer and squeezing. In fact, if you don't have any medical people, how would you even be able to recognize a pancreas?
especially if you're talking, say, a dog pancreas. I certainly never learned dog organs in my biology classes. But I may recognize a frog or worm pancreas. Jeez, that would take all day to extract their insulin. Now, what if a person just has a simple headache? Once you're out of aspirin and ibuprofen, does anyone left know how to make some from scratch? Probably not. What if you're complaining about some pain in your chest? The nurses visually inspect you and probe you with their hands, but without their equipment, they can do little. Furthermore, what if they decide they need to do some blood work? Where exactly are they going to send the blood? Most doctor offices I know send their blood work out to someone else. So under the end-of-the-world circumstances, a nurse or doctor not only are missing the tools to test your blood, they probably don't even know how to perform the test. Modern blood work has gotten fairly sophisticated. In many cases, they've turned it into it's just a litmus-type test, but the technician may not be versed in the specifics of how the test works. They just insert some paper, Yep, turn green, you got leprosy. They may even know how it chemically works, but do they know enough to make the test from scratch themselves? Probably not. In addition, you might need an x-ray. Well, without electricity, you won't be doing that. More on electricity later. Modern medicine relies on complex testing, and even then, for complex problems, it's often wrong, or the diagnosis is, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. So now, all the medical tools are gone, except a hacksaw, your index finger, and some animal fat for lubrication. That's not good. But what about medical procedures? What if a patient has an inflamed appendix? The surgeon may be able to help operate. Oh, wait. It turns out this guy's an orthopedic surgeon. He specializes in bones and muscles. He was introduced to organ surgery in medical school and probably had to do it in his residency. But that was 20 years ago, and this particular doctor is more of an expert in sports-related injuries, particularly knee replacements. He's a little out of his territory. He may have to quickly train a nurse to be an anesthesiologist, which in this case means keeping the patient good and drunk. So you're okay with basic medical issues, but obtaining long-term medication is a problem, along with performing extensive tests. Medical procedures are kind of iffy. You'll have some limited assistance. These people aren't of really that much help on the healthcare front either. I can hear you now. There's tons of medical books and libraries all over the world. Yes, I'm sure there are. Do you want to be the patient while the guy playing doctor is glancing back and forth between a book and your intestines? I question how much you can learn from a medical book without experience. And apparently the medical industry agrees with me, as part of medical doctor's degree is to practice on corpses, and even when they graduate, they have to do residencies under guidance of other doctors, at least for surgical doctors that perform operations on people. Side rhetorical question. How many of you truly remember what to do if you have a severe gash in your leg? How do you dress it? Anyway, that's the best you'll do with medical science. What's next on the list of things you need? This probably isn't high on most people's list, but what about waste removal? I'm not talking about taking out the trash, but that will be a concern eventually. I'm talking about living in your own filth. Or rather, not wanting to. The bubonic plague was seriously aggravated by poor waste conditions. If you're living in a house without running water, just peeing in a toilet isn't a good idea. For the near term, you can simply pour it into the storm drain, but ultimately, to rebuild society, you need a water treatment facility. In addition, you're going to have to get the water pumps working so you can fill the water towers so you'll have water pressure so you can flush your droppings out of the toilet and back to the water treatment facility to start the process all over again. So who in this crowd knows anything about water treatment? Yes, chlorine will kill most bacteria, but that certainly won't remove turds from the pool. Treating water requires filtering, enzymes, and chemicals. How are you going to get these? You can't just go down to the enzyme hut and pick up a do-it-yourself water treatment plant in a box. 
you'll obviously start an existing water treatment plant. But they don't make the filters, enzymes, or chemicals there. They just purchase them from someone else. So we find ourselves in desperate need of a chemist. Thought you'd never hear that. But aside from that, will any of these other people really provide much assistance? Again, probably not. Okay, what should we focus on next? I suggest transportation. You're thinking, but you keep saying everything relies on electricity. Let's get that working. Well, unless you're really unlucky, you don't have an electrical plant in your backyard. You probably don't even know where the nearest one is. So you've got to transport yourself there in some fashion. You've got a mechanic, so he can maintain the various cars that are parked everywhere that belong to the dead. Turns out this guy's a specialist in transmissions. That's good, because automatic transmissions are generally regarded as the most mechanically complex part of a car. Unfortunately, most cars today rely heavily on computers. In addition, to maintain them, you need access to computerized tools. But some basic older cars can surely be salvaged. But... Tires keep wearing out on your cars. It's becoming more and more difficult to find cars with the correct tire size to cannibalize. Same for brake pads and brake discs. Do you know how to manufacture a tire? Tires are made with very high-precision equipment. You don't just make a round rubber thing. And to compensate for any errors, you have to then have them balanced, which is usually performed by a high-precision machine nowadays. But there's something even worse than all those things. Gasoline. How do you get gasoline? Eventually, you'll just siphon it out of the giant underground tanks at the local gas stations. But once that's gone, are any of these people going to be useful when it comes to refining crude oil into gas? How about just extracting the oil from the ground? There may or may not be any oil rigs somewhere nearby, but if there are, do you know how to run them? Even if you use an electric car, you still have the issues with tires and brake pads. You could convert a diesel engine over to run off grease, but then you do have to get the grease. You could probably make moonshine to use as fuel, but I don't think cars run too well off of moonshine. So maybe you'll only be able to use the existing cars in the near term. You need to learn a lot of skills and grow a workforce before you can use them permanently. But what's the biggest limiting factor to your rebuilding of civilization? Electricity! We completely depend on electricity. So how do you get electricity? Well, you can use a gas-powered generator. As I stated before, this will work, but only until you run out of gas. Then you need to start refining gas. Maybe you could find a stream and hook up a generator to a water wheel. That's definitely an option. You're going to have to engineer something large-scale to generate enough energy to run a city on, but it's doable. There's the solar method where you can turn sunlight into electricity. I simply doubt you'll have the tools necessary for this, unless you already live near a solar-powered electric plant. And if you do make one from scratch, I doubt it will have significant amount of electricity. Maybe enough for a house, but to really rebuild society, you'll need to supply electricity to everyone, especially businesses, so you can do things like balance tires, power phones, and start building that new Starbucks, the next generation. But you're in luck. You've got an electrician on hand. He used to wire houses. He points out that all he did was wire up the house and hook it up to the main power grid for the city. If you want electricity, he tells you, you'll have to get the power plant up and running. So the first question is, where is the nearest power plant? I doubt most people know this, but eventually you find a telephone book and locate it. You have plenty of gas still to get you there, so you pile a bunch of people into several vehicles and head off to the power plant. Yay, the power plant! The first thing you'll notice when you get there is the power plant actually uses electricity to run itself via computers. There's a separate generator for this electricity, most likely. You find it and start it up. The computers come to life and nothing much else happens. 
So you'll have to figure out why the power went off to begin with. Obviously, the plant wasn't being maintained. Either it ran out of fuel, or some automatic safety was tripped, or perhaps something just plain broke down. Okay, I am not an expert here, so I could be completely wrong on this, but I do know that we tie electric plants together on a massive grid. It helps balance the load and makes generating electricity more efficient. What may be a problem is if you have several nodes on this grid start failing for whatever reason, they may create a cascade failure where everything shuts down. I believe this is what happened in New York several years ago. You may have to get a significant number of nodes on the grid working before you can continue. There's probably ways to disconnect yourself from the grid, but how do you do that? I know there are some automated systems for this, but do they work in a lack of electricity? I'm not certain on that, but it's something to at least consider. If you're at a fossil fuel burning plant, you're going to need lots and lots of coal or whatever for fuel. If you're at a solar, wind, or hydroelectric plant, you're probably okay on the fuel issue. If you're at a nuclear facility, you'll probably have fuel to last a while, but eventually you'll have to track that down too. Some reactors use plutonium, and I have a suspicion that that's much more carefully guarded than coal. Since this can be used for very powerful weapons, its location is probably not advertised to the general public, so finding it will be yet another task for you. Just to throw some more salt in the wound, a nuclear reactor basically generates steam to power a turbine. Some use regular water. Others use something called heavy water, where the hydrogen atoms have a neutron and a proton. I have no idea how you gather these. And what's worse, I think it was in the 60s that a method was discovered that prevents nuclear reactors from melting down by simply providing the rods with room to expand so they could cool off naturally. However, I don't think any reactors were built after they discovered this, so you might just want to avoid the whole nuclear reactor thing before you die of radiation poisoning. But let's say this plant requires coal just like most of them do. Where do you get this coal? Coal is commonly shipped via railroad to power plants, so before you can get the plant going, you have to track down where the coal comes from. And it just so happens there's an obvious coal railroad drop-off right on the premises. This is great! You have now narrowed the directions you have to search from infinite to two, each 180 degrees away from each other. My point is, you have to locate the coal mine, and then you have to learn how to operate the coal mine. Then you have to transport the coal back to the power plant. Phew, this is getting out of hand. All this just to get a light on? Once you have fuel, you have to figure out how the controls for the power plant work. I'm going to go out on a limb here and make the statement that, while I'm sure power plants have various instruction manuals floating around, you won't be able just to pick up the manual, read it, and know what to do. How can I be so sure? Well, I doubt the C-5 aircraft has a manual in its glove box that explains how to fly. They're going to assume you already know certain concepts, that you already know the terminology. An airplane manual will assume you know the basics of flight. A power plant manual will assume you know the basics of a power plant, which you mostly won't know. I argue the same is true for any type of power plant. I've worked in vertical markets like these before. The manufacturers really don't want to spend the time and money to pay a documentation team to explain things that the customer already knows. Well, unless the customer is a post-apocalyptic survivor, in which case you're not really paying them anything, so they don't care. So getting the power back on is going to be quite difficult. The electrician knows the basic concepts of electricity, but it's likely he graduated from a vocational school and he didn't learn advanced power plant management theory. But, moving on. The last basic thing you need to get society back on its feet is communications. I'll just lump all communications together, just for brevity's sake. I'll wager that once you have electricity, getting a local radio station going won't be too difficult. There's even a good chance that someone still around had a radio show in college. A television station is probably more difficult, but I've known a few people who worked on public access stations, so they might be able to figure it out also. 
Unlike a power plant, some people have actually been exposed to the terminology and workings of a radio and TV station. Problem with radio and TV stations is that not only are they one-way communication, but they have an incredibly limited range. If you really want to reach longer distances and have two-way communications, you need a phone. I'm in no way an expert on either cell phones or landlines, but I've got to believe that their stations are complicated and not self-sustaining. Again, most likely, no one left around is going to have the skills necessary to run a phone plant operation, whatever, I have no idea. So by now, you, the listener, is growing bored with my rantings of what you can't do, and are thinking you've got Rice Krispie treats to finish baking. Get to the point! I don't think we're about to be obliterated by a disease or bombs or an asteroid. However, statistically speaking, one of these things will happen eventually. But statistically speaking, it, it won't be tomorrow. However, if and when this large-scale disaster occurs, much of the world has become so specialized that rebuilding society to the level that we now have is going to be more difficult than it was originally to build it. How can I say that? We'll have workable cars around, empty grocery stores of food and medication, home despot will have piles of available lumber, everything you need to rebuild is out there. True, the raw materials to physically rebuild are there. Unfortunately, I contest that the knowledge to create more of those raw materials will be lost. Individuals do not know how to create those raw materials. I can hear you now. You got libraries full of knowledge all over the place. I retort that books will be inadequate. Let me give you an example by way of something that in no way proliferates society. I dare you to learn to tango by reading a book. Go out and try for yourself. Learn to dance by reading some publication. I, oddly enough, am a capable ballroom dancer. I learned by having an instructor show me what to do. I've read descriptions and seen diagrams of several new moves, and I've tried them a few times, and it's just clunky. I can't get the basics down. It just doesn't work very well or look nice. Then when you see someone who already knows the move do it, it's incredibly different from what you attempted. Now imagine how well you would perform if you learned to dance entirely from a book. Not just a single move, but the entire dance. While I don't think it's impossible to describe something fully in words, it's very difficult, and most instructional books simply aren't written that well. In many cases, it's not even their goal to start from scratch. There are nuances that, in dancing, would make the move more fluid, graceful, or simply show the spirit of the dance. Transfer these nuances to engineering, and you've got the difference between a plane that manages to get off the ground and fly wobbly for a few hundred yards, and a plane that can fly thousands of miles at high altitude. The Wright brothers seem to understand the principles of flight, but it took them years to physically perfect them. Let me give you a better example. On an episode of Mythbusters, they tried to make a steam-powered cannon. We all know that steam can power things. They tried several attempts to get this to work using their understanding of steam with no appreciable results. Then they contacted an expert on steam power, and one of his suggestions was to add some copper nails in their steam chamber. This would increase the surface area and allow water to convert to steam at a greater rate. This and a few other suggestions got their test working better. Their expert's experience came into play here. He probably didn't read a book about making a steam cannon, but he worked with similar things enough to know how to transfer the knowledge. The Mythbusters' experience and information they read wasn't up to the task. They didn't specialize in steam power. This experience, the combined total of human experience, could be lost if a disaster occurs, and I argue that this is mostly due to how specialized we're getting. We live in a world where we depend on technology. The technological discoveries we've made have all been built on someone else's work, 
and in turn, new discoveries are built on our discoveries. Now, I have to defend myself and state that I don't think specialization is bad. I think any advanced civilization must have specialization. You can't create a mass communication device if you have to spend 14 hours a day hunting down lunch and dinner. You need someone to take care of that for you so you can go make a cotton gin or a spinning jenny or beefeater gin. In addition, we have entire infrastructures built upon other infrastructures that support everyone. Even if you can make gas, how do you distribute it to everyone? The loss of these infrastructures and the experience behind them would be devastating, not to mention that we simply won't have a sufficiently sized workforce to run this infrastructure. In the 1700s, I argue that most people knew how to butcher an animal. Not everyone, mind you, but most people. They probably also knew how to start a fire, hunt an animal, and how to turn a raccoon or a wild badger into a fashionable hat. They simply didn't rely on a great number of external sources. Now, life was much more difficult for them, but at the same time, they were much more self-sufficient. You could take away their knife and they'd just use a buffalo femur. It was probably common to know how to make your own clothes as well as build your own house. I will grant you that their medical knowledge was almost useless. I mean, they thought that having leeches drink your blood would extract illnesses. But I argue that today the average person's medical knowledge isn't much better. I mean, many people swear by magnets, crystals, and other magics. But most of us go see a doctor when we got a problem. We don't have families performing surgery on each other and giving each other pap smears. We rely on someone else to solve that problem for us. And when you think of the word specialist, you probably think of a doctor that deals in a very narrow region of medicine. That or possibly a hitman. But we're almost all specialists in whatever our field is. So when we suddenly have to fend for ourselves, we got a problem. We'll need a butcher. The one at most grocery stores start out with pre-butchered meat and they just merely refine it. But I'll grant that they probably have the skills to figure it out or read a book about it and understand it. They at least have worked with the terminology and the basics. You're going to need clean water. Do you know how to run a water treatment plant? Most people don't even want to think about the fact that much of the water they drink previously came from their neighbor's bladder and had condoms and dead weasels floating in it. Suppose you're a survival expert and a sharpshooter with a rifle. You've been living off the land for years. You probably can make your own bullets. Can you make your own gunpowder? Maybe you can. But you need some form of metal to make those bullets out of. Can you smelt your own lead from raw ore pulled from the ground? What about the copper casings? You rely on someone else to do that for you. Someone who may now be dead. Since I'm bringing up smelters, would you even recognize metal ore when you saw it? One of our more productive silver mines just scoops up tons of what appears to be dark brown dirt, and after a multi-step process, they end up with a bright shiny silver. Most metals bear no resemblance to the final product, Often it just looks like black rock. That's the whole point of the refinement process, to purify a metal by removing all the other crap. And depending on what process you're referring to, some of those processes are trade secrets, and they're not shared with outsiders. They may have it written down, but probably not. They just train new people on how to run the machines and go from there. There is no book on how to do it. In addition to refining metals, you have to know how to shape metals. You have to know how to run the machine that forges steel or makes wire or forms it into sheets. These are the basics of working with metals. Having a block of solid steel is much less useful than steel wire or a steel sheet. And another thing, when mankind was finally able to produce extremely high heat, 
Suddenly, many more types of metals were at their disposal. Do you know how to make a 5,000 degree fire? Does the lawyer? Making metals is going to be a very difficult task for you. Yes, we can cannibalize existing things and use them for purposes other than what was intended. That's good for the short term. Long term, it just reinforces in us not learning how to take care of ourselves. We will become scavengers and capable of doing for ourselves. The longer we stay as scavengers, the more difficult it will be to regain the lost knowledge. Hey, that raises a question. Can you weld? Can you manufacture oxyacetylene? Some teachers will survive, but your average teacher focuses on things like history, an overview of biology, grammar, social studies, and debate. There's nothing wrong with that. So any teachers listening, I'm not trying to insult you, and I'm all in favor of a well-rounded education. But those particular skills won't help rebuild a fallen society, at least not from a technological standpoint. The thing I think is most interesting is that the people that will be most valuable are chemists, physicists, and mathematicians, who are often teachers themselves. Ore refinement, gasoline production, running electrical plants, maintaining phone companies, these all require an advanced understanding of chemistry, physics, and or mathematics. I think it's interesting because these fields have always been important, but I get the feeling that most people think they're useless. I get a vibe that we've moved beyond the need for these eggheads. In fact, the opposite is true. We need them, and we'll always continue to need them. I've often heard, why do we need physics, chemistry, or mathematics? Your answer should be that it's the foundation for all of our technology. But no one wants to think about that. When you see a special effect in a movie and you think, that was a great special effect, the special effects artist probably failed. If it's truly realistic, you won't even consider that it's not real. Chemists, physicists, mathematicians have in fact done their jobs so well over the centuries that we don't even notice how primal they are for our survival. And there are certainly other scientific disciplines that are equally useful. But notice how few true science-based jobs there are relative to non-science-based jobs. The scientists have made it easier for less skilled labor to be useful. That's an amazing accomplishment and apparently a highly disregarded one. I'd also like to point out that by definition of average, most of the survivors will be average. You're not likely to be left with the best and brightest. You'll most likely be left with a ragtag band where half of them previously would punch in at eight, start thinking about that beer they're going to have later, punch out at five, then go have themselves a beer and watch American Idol. Are you aware that buildings and bridges must be maintained? They don't just last forever. Do you know what needs to be done to maintain a bridge, like, say, the Golden Gate Bridge? If this maintenance is not kept up, the bridge will eventually fail. So while you're busy trying to survive and putting things like bridge maintenance on hold, the bridges are slowly falling apart. And once that happens, now we have to learn to build a new one. That requires lots of civil engineering skill that, again, may be lost. You'll be left with plenty of existing computers, but few people around that know how to repair them. Hell, nowadays, repairing a computer usually amounts to replacing the piece that went bad. It's just cheaper than trying to diagnose it further. If you just keep swapping out bad parts with existing good parts, you're never going to learn how these parts work. Eventually, you'll run out of existing parts. There'll probably be plenty of survivors from Silicon Valley, unless the cataclysm was a nuclear war, in which case Silicon Valley would probably be a target if for no other reason than financial impact. But let's say that there are survivors from Intel that make CPUs. But these guys know how to manufacture a hard drive? What about DVD drives? What about a blank DVD-R? What about graphics cards? Sure, they know the basic premise, but that's not their specialty. 
In addition, computers are not just hardware and software. There's something called firmware that goes between the two. You'll need someone that knows that. A computer technology changes so fast, much of this information isn't available in any library. Much of it is a trade secret that is closely guarded by the manufacturer. It simply isn't available to the public. Now are you starting to see how important math, physics, and chemistry are? Have you ever really tried to learn math or chemistry from a book? There are people that are proficient at these, but for the average person, these books are written terribly. Math problems are usually about simplification. You simplify a math problem until it's easier to solve. Every math book I've ever read has always done multiple simplification steps between what they call a single step. This is fine if you understand everything, but it's not a good teaching technique. For the average person, advanced math such as calculus or even trigonometry is just too abstract to skip these steps. But I'm not here to dog math books. I'm pointing out that learning purely from a book is difficult. It's possible, but most books aren't written well enough for this. I'm not saying that when some major plague hits us, we're doomed. Doomed! No, we'll bounce back. But I believe there's a potential for us, depending on how bad the disaster is, to be pushed back much farther than we should be. We could be left surrounded by useless technology. If you take some native who lives on an island somewhere in the Pacific, he knows how to survive on his own with no outside assistance, at least not from beyond his immediate tribe. Can the same be said of most people in modern society? No, and that's the problem. We, who think we are vastly superior to this primitive culture, now find ourselves beneath them. This primitive native has generations of experience to build on. His family has passed down techniques to him for centuries. We've lost that experience. So we're truly starting back at ground zero. And while we're focused on relearning how to survive on our own, we'll be further losing all the experiences that we have built up. Generations will grow up not knowing much about our advanced technology. There won't be time to pass along what we used to know. We'll be too busy just trying to survive. And I suspect much of our prejudices towards science will remain. People will still think it's useless, even more so. They'll focus on the fact that they have to survive. I'm worried about dinner. I ain't got time to do some stupid experiment that allows me to etch a circuit board. I ain't gonna feed my youngs. I suspect we'll fall into a new and exciting dark age where an angry god is blamed for our woes and animal sacrifices are used to both appease the god and as entertainment. Ain't nothing better than a good goat throat slitting. Woohoo! Look at him bleed! Out of my way, I can't see. In this episode, my point is not to persuade you to any side. Rather, I just want to make people aware that our specialization will make any planetary disaster that much worse for us when we try to rebuild society. Again, I'm not saying specialization is bad. It's very necessary. It makes us much more efficient and removes massive redundancy. Because of specialization, everyone can live better because we don't all have to constantly worry about whether or not we're going to eat that day. We haven't gotten that globally solved, but we're working on it. Unfortunately, this lost redundancy makes us much more vulnerable. I'm not trying to warn you of the Ides of Smarch or that you should immediately enroll in Ted Nugent's Weekend Survival School. Just something to think about as you look into the sky and realize that the vapor trail you see could be from an ICBM and you wouldn't even know. You open another bottle of beer and suddenly realize that you have only a vague idea about how a machine makes glass bottles or slams a top on said bottle. And you definitely have no idea how to build such a machine. It also occurs to you that this beer is cold just the way you like it. Refrigeration changed the world, as did interchangeable parts. As you take another swig, you realize that Eli Whitney was a genius. 
Few things that this realization might affect, however. Is a completely paperless office really a good idea? Imagine 50 years from now, we should easily have the ability to go without paper at all. Sounds good. But how do you get the information when the power goes out? Maybe it's a good idea to create a global library not populated by existing books, but perhaps have various specialists do a knowledge dump into this library. But that's really not practical and raises issues of accuracy. Maybe this is what Wikipedia could evolve into. Lastly, if there was ever a good reason for space travel, here it is. The sooner we can get all of our proverbial eggs out of one planet-sized basket, the more likely the human species will survive. I mean, you don't see too many stagosauruses around anymore, do you? A mass extinction will happen. It's only a matter of time. I'll leave you with a line from Mark Twain. Be careful about reading health books. You may die of a misprint. Visit our website at logicallycritical.com. Send feedback to podcast at logicallycritical.com. 